Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's, uh, I can tell you that um, it's been my privilege to get to know Keith and Terry. I've been involved with, we've been involved in each other's lives for a number of years now, and uh, I just love those two guys. And I'm just thrilled to death to be here. I'm thankful I can be a part of this. Um, how many have ever heard of LaRue, Ohio? I'm waiting. <laughs> All right, Glenn. Um, you probably haven't. I mean, people in our county don't even know where it is. It's, it's a town of about seven, 700, and uh, I pastor there at LaRue Baptist Church. I've been there since 1985, or since Keith was in second grade. Um, and... Uh, I've been involved in biblical counseling, um, I'd say about 35 of those 36 years. Um, The first, um, I would say, kind of involved for 35 years because after the first year of ministry at LaRue, I was done. I was ready to hang it up already. And then the Lord providentially introduced me to biblical counseling, and so it transformed all kinds of things in our in our family, in our church. Um, and so I'm just always, always, always thrilled when I can be a part of something like this because of what happened in my life uh, in terms of family and in terms of pastoral ministry. Let me ask real quick, how many pastors are here? Are there any pastors here? All right, good, guys, great. Um, too many pastors think, oh, that's nice. Biblical counseling is something that would be nice to add to my repertoire, but I just don't have time right now. And I want to say to you pastors here today that this is shepherding. We're talking about shepherding here. We're talking about binding up the wounds of the sheep. And the rest of you who are here, you can be mightily involved in this ministry in a great way. Um, in our church, biblical counseling changed the DNA of our church in a major way. And so... Um, I have always been so thankful. We have people who think biblically and help one another, and uh, it's marvelous. So all of you here, I am so glad you're here. And I know, like Keith said, you're going to be brain dead by tomorrow afternoon. But it's worth it, I hope you find. I hope you find that it's worth it. Okay, we want to talk about the biblical view of marriage. And before we do, let's just ask God to to guide our thinking as we do this, all right? Father, would you help us now? We're talking about something that's extraordinarily important, and so I pray that you would impress upon these folks the necessity of understanding this. Um, I pray, Father, that through this, some would start rethinking their marriages. I pray that you would help them to see the necessity of understanding this for counseling. I pray, Father, that you would uh, just be at work here in this congregation, in this group of people, in this class, as we look at this together from the Scriptures. Thank you now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if I look at my watch, don't be insulted. I've got to make sure I get done in the time allotted, okay? If you had asked me 30 years ago, Tim, why did you get married? I'm not sure what I would have told you. I might have said something like, well, 
I love this woman, and you're supposed to marry the one you love, right? Or I might have responded, well, because God says that you can't, you know, until after you're married, right? In fact, three days, three days after Beck and I were married, I was saying to myself, what in the world have I gotten myself into? That's a whole story I'd love to tell you sometime. But you see, we do not know the purpose of marriage. Many people don't know the purpose of marriage, and they don't have any idea what it's about. In 1986, nine years after we were married, someone came alongside me with the scriptures and showed me the purpose of marriage. And that's what we want to talk about here. Nine years without really knowing why we were married. We were. Had to do it. Had to stick it out. But why? Why is there marriage? And when I learned that, it revolutionized our relationship, and things have not been the same since then. Now, people today make wrecks of their marriages because they don't understand what marriage is and what God intends to happen in marriage. Sadly, many Christians are trapped, and they're hopeless in their marriages. In fact, too many Christian marriages are ending in divorce, they ask the question, what in the world have I gotten myself into? They don't know. They don't understand the purpose of marriage. And by not understanding the purpose of marriage, they don't fulfill that purpose. And because they don't know the purpose, and they're not fulfilling the purpose, they end up helpless and hopeless. And so what we want to do is to talk about what the Bible says about Marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? What is marriage all about? And God wants all of us to experience a revolution in our thinking concerning marriage. And so this morning, I'm sorry, this evening, we're going to begin with the first wedding ceremony. So turn in your Bibles. Did you bring your Bibles? Biblical counselor without a Bible is an unarmed person. Genesis chapter 2. I want you to follow along as I read. Verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, as we look at this, um, as we look at this wedding ceremony, here's some questions. Who planned the first ceremony? God did. Who gave the bride away? God did. Who officiated? That ought to tell us something. That ought to tell us something right away. Now, so the first thing we have to understand is we have to understand that marriage has divine origin. 
Marriage has a divine origin. Marriage is not a social contract that our ancestors originated in the mists of prehistory. I remember being in high school in a social studies course, I think it was sociology or something. I was taught that marriage began in prehistoric times as the social structures of Homo sapiens gradually involved, evolved. And if that's so, then it can be discarded at will or changed as men see fit, as humankind sees fit. And that's what we're seeing today. Am I I right? We have people defining what marriage is, well, redefining what marriage is, and all kinds of things now are being called family or marriage because we've lost sight of the fact that it has divine origin and we don't have the right to define, describe, regulate, whatever. We don't have the right to do that. But Scripture says that's not the case. Marriage is not a social contract that our ancestors originated back in the midst of prehistory. So since it has divine origin, God is the one who has the authority to regulate it. He's the one who can describe it. He's the one who regulates it. Now, one of the first things that we need to see is that God calls marriage good. Can I say something to you? Don't ever disparage the institution of marriage. Don't make fun of it. Don't poke at it. Right? The world does that all the time. We don't need to do that. Marriage is a good thing. God called marriage good. In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 1, after he created male and female, these two different kinds of beings, these sexual beings, he said it's very good. And so marriage is good. Now, one thing we have to understand, and again, as you look towards counseling, okay, you're saying, okay, Pastor Tim, this is good. I love this, that you're teaching us about marriage, but what does this have to do with counseling? I thought I was going to come and get some tips about how to counsel marriage. Listen, see, I'm already going to lose some time here. (laughs) One thing you need to understand is that counseling is doing theology. And if you're here and you're saying, teach me about counseling, but let's let's not talk about theology, then you, you don't understand counseling. Counseling is doing Theology. Counseling is applying biblical truth. It is a theological, biblical endeavor. And unless your theology is right, you won't be an effective counselor. By the way, did you know that everyone's a counselor? You got that, right? The question is, are you going to be a good one or a bad one? And you'll be a good one if you understand biblical truth. And so what we're talking about here. I can tell you right now, what we're talking about here, yeah, it's theology, it's biblical truth, but this has to find expression in our counseling. I'm taking, um, I'm taking the Word of God and bringing it to bear on particulars within a counseling situation. And so, if you're here thinking, I didn't sign up for this, actually you did, okay? Now here's the next thing we have to understand. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. It is a covenantal relationship. When you look at the prophet Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2, 
In Malachi, God is bewailing the things that these folks are doing. And one of the things he talks about is their marriages. And he says in verse 13, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. According to this text, marriage must be understood in a covenantal context. You are married to your spouse because you have entered into a covenant. Now we have to understand that. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. It has to be understood that way, because that's what God says here. Now, what exactly comes with a covenant? I want you to go with me to Genesis 31, and you'll see an example of what a covenant is like and what's involved in a covenant. Turn to Genesis 31. You find the story of the covenant that's made between Jacob and Laban. Now, Jacob has left Laban rather hurriedly, and Laban's attitude toward him has changed for the worse. Laban pursues and catches Jacob and his entourage, and here they make a covenant. Genesis 31, 42, or 43 through 55. Let's read it. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yagarsha Aduta, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear his father, uh, fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. So what's going on? Now, what's going on when you see that a covenant is made? Um, what's involved in that? Well, when you look at verse 50 and verses 51 through 53, you see, first of all, that God is called as a witness, meaning that you are subject to God's judgment if you break the stipulations of the covenant. God is called as a witness. You see that. In the last part of verse 53, a solemn oath or vow is taken. Okay? 
And so you take this solemn oath, this vow before God, and then a sacrifice is involved. Now when you read Make a Covenant in the Old Testament, it's a translation of the Hebrew that literally can be translated, cut a covenant. Now the reason why the terminology is used is that an animal is killed. An animal is killed in the process of making a covenant. The implication was that you made this covenant on pain of death. That is to say, if I break the stipulations of this covenant, may it be to me as it was to this animal. Okay? So it's a very, very serious thing. Animal sacrifice spoke of fearful consequences. All right? By the way, you also notice they ate a covenantal meal in this process. But the thing we need to see then is that a covenant is the most solemn pledge anyone can make. It is not something that you enter into lightly. Oh my, doesn't that sound familiar? Right? This is a covenant. Now, as we look at Malachi, what do we find there? You say, God says here in Malachi that your marriage is established by a covenant. This is the most solemn pledge that you can make. In fact, it is a pledge made before God Himself. That's what's involved in the covenant. You make it, God is your witness. Alright? In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, the writer describes the adulteress as one who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. And so what you see here is in the Old Testament, in God's Word, that marriage is always seen in this covenantal context. And what we need to understand is, this is an incredibly solemn thing. It is a covenant that's made before God as a witness. All right? And it is the most solemn thing that you can do. Now let me just throw in something here that's that's invaded our thinking. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's come to us through Roman Catholic um, theology. And that is this whole idea of consummation. Right? You, you have the wedding ceremony, but you're really not married until you have sexual intimacy that first wedding night. That's not true. The Bible nowhere says that. The Bible nowhere indicates that. The moment the pastor says, I now pronounce you man and wife, you are indeed man and wife from that point on. The covenant has been made. You have entered that covenant. You are now man and wife, no matter what happens later. That's the deal, okay? And so we have to see that marriage is a covenant. You're going you're gonna to be... Listen, the, the pressures of our age are always pressing in on us. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he talked about not, not, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the form of the world. Be renewed in your what? In your thinking, right? And we've constantly got this pressure. And you're going to have people that you're trying to help who don't understand this. They don't see the solemnity of what they have done. Whether they know they're entering covenant or not, they've entered a covenant. Whether or not it's before a pastor or for a justice of the peace, you've entered a covenant. Okay? And so people being being conformed to the spirit of the age, oftentimes, even in our churches, don't get it. They don't get that. Right? 
It's just not working out for me. Yeah, divorce is a horrible thing, but you know, it's just not. It's you know, this is not working for me. Okay. Um, and so we have to understand that. So then, marriage is divine in its origin. It is a covenantal relationship. But what is the obligation of that covenant? What is the obligation? What is the purpose then of marriage? What obligation do I take upon myself when I enter into the covenant of marriage? And here's the bottom line. And this is where the rubber really meets the road because this is what I'm constantly saying in marriage counseling. And that is that marriage is given for the purpose of companionship. Okay? It's given for the purpose of companionship. Marriage is a covenantal agreement to meet all the needs of your spouse for companionship. Turn back to Genesis 2. This is a key passage for us. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Now, you know, 25 is there too. They're both naked and not ashamed. That's the one that used to make us blush. And and what what Moses is doing with that verse is setting you up for chapter 3. He's trying to tell you after that first marriage, there was such unity in that marriage that there was nothing between them. There's nothing hiding. There's no suspicion. It's not even clothes. Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a indication of the true unity that this first couple experienced. Can you imagine a marriage with no suspicion, no anger, no secrets? Right? Nothing like that. That's what it was like. Now, Genesis 2, verse 18. When I was younger, I, I never could quite understand this passage. Okay, so verse 18, what's going on? In verse 18, God declares man's need for companionship. Okay? He declares it. It's not good for man to be alone. All right? And then God reveals man's need for companionship, not to himself, but to Adam, right? Do you ever wonder what it was? And no suitable help or no help or fit for Adam was found. What's that all about? Simply this. Adam is looking at and naming, studying, if you will, all these animals and birds and so forth, and he names them all. But it's not God who doesn't see that he doesn't have a suitable helper. It's Adam who notices that, who figures it out. Right? It's indicated later when he says, aha, finally, right? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There was no other creature in the world like him. He was it. He was alone. He never found, in all that study, he did not find a helper that was fit for him. And then verses 21 through 23, Jesus, I'm sorry, God solves man's need for companionship. So he reveals it, or he declares it, he reveals it, and then he solves it. And then verse 24 comes along. Now, I've got to tell you, and maybe I'm slow, but I never could figure out verse 24. It just never made sense to me. Did it make sense to you? Does anybody else here have that? Why do you think it didn't make sense to me? Yeah. What's that doing there? They don't have a mother. They don't have a father. They don't have any parents. Why is that all about? It's simply this. This is Moses breaking in 
with the moral of the story. You, remember, you know what a moral of the story is? When I was a kid, uh, and my dad would take me and my brother, and I can still see it. So it's this little gray book with a picture of a lion and a mouse eating away at some ropes or a net that the lion's in. It was a book of Aesop's fables. Maybe none of you have ever heard of this book. Aesop was this ancient Greek guy, and he had all these stories. And, and at the end of every story, there was in bold print the moral of the story. So my dad would... I think he liked this one. He would read about the brothers who couldn't get along, and their dad gave them each a stick, and they could each break the stick. Then he made a bundle, and none of them could break it. And the moral of the story is, right, when you're unified, you're unbreakable. Moses has given us the moral of the story here. He's telling us why he gave us this story. He breaks in to tell you about marriage now, based on what God did then. So verse 24 is a key verse in understanding marriage. If this is the moral of that story, if this is talking about the way marriage should be based on that, then we need to listen. He says this is how you recreate, if you will, the perfect model of companionship. This is how you recreate that first pristine marriage. All right? So he's got a lot to say to us here, right? This is the key to understanding marriage. How then will you fulfill your covenantal obligation in marriage? How will you serve God's purpose in marriage? And here's what he says. Three simple words. Leave, cleave, and weave. Okay? I don't... I don't think that's original with me, by the way. But, you know, after you've been doing things for so many years, you, f- you forget who said it first and it just becomes yours. Okay. So, you know, if you quote this somewhere, I'm not going to get on your case if you don't attribute it to me. All right. Leave, cleave, and weave. That's the key to a marriage. By the way, it says a man should leave his father, and his mother. Men, you take the initiative in leading and modeling companionship. Men, you need to take the lead. In my experience, believe it or not, in my experience I have found that it's the man who struggles the most with that and not the woman. Now, that doesn't carry biblical authority. I mean, you know, there's always, you know, that's a pretty broad stroke. But that's, that's what I see quite a bit. You know, when I was in college, I got involved in this musical, and my wife, and she wasn't my wife yet, she was my fiancé, actually, and I was in Ohio, and she was in Iowa, and I said, honey, I just would really like if you'd come out and see the play. And her response was, yeah, my dad thinks that that would cost too much money for me to drive out there. This was when gas had gone to 50 cents a gallon, I'm telling you, <laughs> which was really expensive back then. And I, I remember thinking, good night. When is she ever going to cut the apron strings? When's she going to get free of her parents? She just does whatever her parents say. And then she was visiting our house, and um, she walks in the room one day and says to me, I think your mother uses too much water when she boils her potatoes. I was furious. <laughs> what? How can you say that about my mother? Right? 
Men, we need to take the lead in this. But let's get back to let's let's get back to where we are. The first thing you have to do is to leave. You have to leave. The word means forsake, which is to say not that you not that you have to uh, not that you have to move across the United States, not that you have to move into another town, but what it does say is that your relationship with your parents must change radically. All right? Your your relationship with your parents has to change radically. That is, you need to establish an adult relationship with them. You're not their children doing their bidding. Now you're looking at them eye to eye. Okay? An adult relationship with them. Let me tell you how I learned this. Really. So, my daughter Lydia. So we had three boys and three girls in that order. Okay, which I'm so thankful for. And so Lydia's my second daughter. Lydia's married to Lee. And uh, my wife and I, at the time, and the kids who were at home, the two that were at home, we, we, we were trying to help this drug addict who was living with us. So Beck and I were going to go on this pastor's retreat or something, and so I was talking to my kids about what to do with Sarah and they're they're just giving me grief and Lydia now she's married now but Lydia was in the kitchen and she's saying something and I just I just got really angry and I could just see the tears welling up in her eyes and I'm thinking oh man and I can't go right I can't go yet because you got to solve your problems every day don't let the sun go down in your anger so a few minutes later I said Lyd you and I need to talk and I, we walk into this other, the other room, the living room, and I'm starting to talk to her, and she's got tears, and Lee walks in. Okay? Lee walks in, and he looks at his wife, who I was still thinking, you know, was my daughter. He was looking at his wife, and he walks in. He looks me right in the eye, and he says, Is everything okay here? And I thought, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're just trying to solve some problems. But I'm telling you, that is an adult relationship, right? He's not going to let me hurt his wife, right? Man to man. You've got to have an adult relationship. Your mate's ideas become more important than your parents'. To leave means that your mate's ideas and practices are more important than your parents'. It means that you make the husband and wife relationship your priority relationship. Now note, verse 24 tells us that children are temporary residents. This is the only relationship, the only only permanent human relationship. Our children are not our priority. Our marriage relationship is. Okay? I've got to, to leave... Um, my parents. And that means that this relationship with my wife is more important than this one to my parents. All right? Then he says you need to cleave, or as the ES, um, ESV says, hold fast, to cling, or to hold fast. This has the idea of loyalty, priority of affection. Okay? Loyalty or priority of affection. 
A scene that too often plays out in our homes is like this. Monday. Hi, dear, I'm home. Gotta go. You know the softball team plays tonight. Tuesday. Who's taking the kids to practice tonight? Wednesday. Hi, hon, how are you? No, did you forget that Sam and I were going to be working on the car tonight? Thursday. Hey, hon, I'm home tonight. What? I didn't know that you and Jen were going to go do that tonight. Okay, I'll see you later. Friday. What a day. But good news, the boss is going to promote me. I get a new job. It may mean I'll be on the road for four days a week. But the money is going to be great. Now you see where we're going here. What has priority of uh, of your affections? What else has that priority? Too many Christians invest enormous amount of time in work, in hobbies, in education, in children's activities, in ministry, so that this does not have the priority of affection that God calls for here. And this is something that you're going to have to deal with a lot in marriage counseling. Why are these folks sitting there? Because they're not fulfilling the purpose of marriage. They're not cleaving to one another. They've got all kinds of other things going. In fact, I'm going to say something radical. What if both of you have jobs that interfere with companionship? What are you going to do? I'm reminded of Matthew 6.33. If you seek me and my righteousness... I'll make sure you have everything you need. Right? Remember a guy in our church, John. They started coming to church. I think I was preaching on the family at that time. He was an over-the-road truck driver. You know what he said? i got to get another job. I'm gone. I'm gone too much. I can't be a companion if I'm gone. So he got another job, another truck driving job that wouldn't, that wouldn't do that. How do you cleave? Let me just give you some real quick suggestions here. Number one, just say no. Just say no to so many things that will take you away. you got to say no. Every morning as you take inventory and ask, how will I serve Christ today? Then make sure you look over the agenda for the day to see if you're fulfilling your obligation, your covenantal obligation of companionship. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, and live lives of sacrifice, just as Jesus gave himself up for you. So, discover and meet needs. Discover the needs of your spouse and meet them. You know, Beck and I, I'll tell you, when, when I learned this, when I was sitting where you're sitting, and I learned what I'm telling you right now, I had to come home and I had to repent and we had to start working on, we got to be companions. Which meant for us, we had to get really disciplined, put our children to bed at 8 o'clock, so we would have two to three hours by ourselves just to talk, just to, just to be together. It meant saying no to outside ministries. It meant saying no to ministries in the church sometimes. That's when I got into the habit of saying, oh, pastor, we need to have a youth group. When are you going to do it? I'd say, no, no. You're the one with the burden. You're the one who can take over. But I had to learn some things. I had to learn when someone called me with a crisis, I had to start gathering data. You heard that? And figuring out if this really is a crisis that's going to take me out. Now, of course, there are times when I had to. That's understandable. 
But too often in ministry, what we do is we're, that's everything. No, no, you've got to fulfill your obligation. You know, one year, in our county, in our school system, here's our county schools used to have a basketball program. It went like this. Fourth grade boys basketball, fourth grade girls basketball, fifth grade boys basketball, sixth, uh, fifth grade girls, sixth grade boys, sixth grade girls. Every one of those teams played in a different school, right? So if you had a fourth and a fifth grader, that meant you're going here with one and going here with another, all right? And we were thinking, we can't do that. I mean, that's just going to tear us apart for another day. And so here's what we did. We said to my two boys, the, the fourth and the fifth graders, we said, okay, we're going to flip a coin. Whoever wins gets to choose if he wants to play this year or next year, and the other one will take the opposite. Of course, we ruined their NBA careers that way, but... <laughs> but... But, and by the way, they ended up wrestling. In fact, my, my, my second son is the wrestling coach at the high school. But anyway, the point is that we had to say, this is going to take us apart, and we need to keep it to a minimum. If we're going to be companions, then, then we need to, to do that. Now listen, listen, all of us need to be this way. We need to be looking at our covenantal obligation of companionship. And listen, that's where my, that's almost always where you have to start in marriage counseling. Because they're not companions. They're not living in their marriage according to God's purpose. That's why they're there. Now, not always, but, oh, man, I can't tell you how often that's the case. The last thing we have to do is weave together that speaks of oneness or intimacy becoming one flesh now what genesis 2:24 is not merely talking about sexual relations it's not in fact let me just say this our sexual relationship should be should be the expression of the intimacy that we've experienced all all day right um you know, this is where I can get off on one of my rants. Yeah, I think I have time. <laughs> Listen, the sexual relationship is the icing on the cake. It's what tops off what's been a good day of companionship. You know, when you you have that day when you go to the store together, oh, yes, you go into the store with your wife and you spend time with, and with the cart together <laughs> together and then you go eat lunch somewhere and and you're having a good time and you're talking about what God is doing in each other's lives and all that that night it's icing on the cake it's it's the final expression to what you've experienced all day long all right so it's not the the end all of everything. It is an expression of the companionship that we should be experiencing. And the fact is that Jesus understood this to mean more than sexual relations because in Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, he said, Haven't you read, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You see what he's saying? It's two people becoming one, not just having sex. It's two people becoming one. It's, it's if you will, and, and another freebie's not in my notes. If you will, it is part of our image bearing. Because we image a trinity. How do we do that? Two separate individuals become one, two yet one. You see? God intended for two people to become like one, the unity of two people. God wants you to be companions. That is what this, that, that, that what this unity is in every aspect of life. That's what the bottom line is. Well, how do you produce unity? Let me just throw some things at you here. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, the fact that Jesus died breaking down all barriers, right? So that we're one. If you're Christians, every barrier, no matter what, has been broken down. But Ephesians 4 is what then makes it practical, what makes it happen. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, right? Pursue the unity of the Spirit with um, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. You say, I know, but that's addressed to the church. Okay, fine. You've got two members living together. So do this. All right? Be forbearing. Be humble. Be gentle with one another, and you will become one. Ephesians 4, verse 15, talks about the fact that we speak the truth in love. And Ephesians 4, 25 says we're honest with one another. We're open and honest because we're members of one body. Communicate in love and communicate consistently. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Right? He did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but gave it up in order to serve us going from the highest point in the universe to the lowest point. Put others' interests above your own, says the Apostle Paul. That's what's going to produce unity. That's what's going to produce a one-flesh relationship. And because you become one flesh in principle when you enter the covenant, you must become one flesh in practice. No more thinking of his money and her money. Boy, I tell you, I've had couples, yeah, well, that's his money and this is my money. Just get rid of that, right? No more making decisions without reference to your spouse. No longer do you have separate interests, but you start to merge them. So if you know the purpose of marriage, that will define your marriage relationship, and you begin to fulfill your covenant relation, uh, covenant obligations. But here's another major question. What if... My spouse is not meeting his or her covenant obligations. Now what do I do in this counseling situation? So I'm going to give you a quiz. What is the goal of all counseling? Come on, you should know this. Every time I meet with someone in counseling, I say, and when I supervise guys I say, or gals, I say, look, you got to get this across in the first session, no later than the second one. You've got to tell them what your goal in counseling is. What is the goal of all counseling? What? To glorify God. That's right. And don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever lose sight of that. Because if you lose sight of that, when someone comes in and they're talking about their husband or their wife that is not meeting their covenant obligations, they're not being a companion, then your temptation is going to be to fiddle and to manipulate and work to get them together. 
Now, you want them together, but you cannot lose sight of the fact that you are counseling this person that they would glorify God. And whether or not the spouse is meeting that obligation, he or she must meet that obligation, not because it will regain the other, but it's because that's what will glorify God. That is what will glorify God. Oftentimes, I look at Philippians 1.20 where the Apostle Paul says, um, Pray that I have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He's, he's going to have a hearing about whether he lives or dies. And he says, it doesn't matter if I live or die. What really matters is Christ is magnified. And so when I sit there with a couple, I'll say, boy, if both of you want to magnify Christ, you're going to have a marriage that sings. But if only one of you does, if one of you bails out on this whole thing, and the other one, whether you do it together or whether you do it alone, what are you going to do? You're going to magnify Christ. And so you've got to make sure that, yes, your spouse may not be meeting his or her obligations, but you must still work at it because that's the way God's glory will be seen. Now, we need to understand radical companionship. Radical companionship. What do we mean by that? Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Because Jesus, who has redeemed you from sin, is Lord, this covenantal companionship gets radical. Now, what's fascinating to me is to see how the Bible takes this idea of Jesus' lordship Right? And what it does is it takes all the mundane things of life and elevate them to another level. You go to work every day, right? And man, it's, you trudging off to work. It's the same old thing. You're tired of it. And Colossians, the Apostle Paul says what? Work for whom? It's for the Lord. Right? He's watching. He's got a reward for you just for being a faithful worker, right? He's Lord, and so your work changes. He's Lord, and so your parenting changes. He's Lord, and so your marriage changes. See, the Bible, with the lordship of Jesus, takes even the mundane things of life and elevates them to another level where it's like this. Jesus is Lord, and that's got to be seen in even the mundane things of life, even in our marriages, Jesus has come inaugurating a whole new age with a radical transformation of all of life. And that means our marriages as well. And because Jesus is Lord, you choose a mate differently than everybody else. Right? You choose a mate differently. Second Corinthians, or yeah, Second Corinthians chapter 6, 14 and 15 talks about, you know, this unity that happens. Don't be bound with um, darkness. What does light have to do with darkness? Do you really believe you can be a companion to someone when harmony at the deepest level proves impossible? And so you're going to have to choose someone who belongs to Jesus. Okay? Um, you choose someone else who belongs to Jesus. Women, stop looking for mates on the basis of a worldly concept of romance. 
Stop looking for the knight in shining armor on the white horse who will rescue you, who will understand you by just merely looking into your eyes. And he's witty and he's charming and he can debate with any scholar on the planet and yet build your house with his bare hands. Stop it. Stop looking for a husband on that basis. You know, a a dear friend of mine or, or a friend of mine who went to be with the Lord once called those romance books that are so popular, he called it female pornography. You soak your minds in that and you lose sight of what God has to say. You need to look instead for a man who fears God, who loves the Lord Jesus even more than he loves you who is godly in his ways. See, God wants you to have a companion, not a conqueror. Okay? And by the way, that guy is going to look a whole lot better to you when you start investing in companionship. All right? Guys, stop looking for the perfect woman. What is the perfect woman? It's the woman who has a gorgeous face, who has the right proportions in her body, and that's about as far as you get. All right? Tell me I'm wrong, guys. You got to remember that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What's fascinating to me is 1 Peter chapter 3, where it says that a woman can be characterized by a submissive spirit that's and the unfading beauty of a submissive spirit. Right? A quiet spirit. You're looking for a woman with a quiet spirit that even age can't erase the beauty of that. See, God wants you to have a companion, not a model. And he knows better than you where real joy is found. And again, this is where the rubber meets the road. Right? Because look, we all know what happens. You can marry the most beautiful woman in the world. But when you start living with her, her beauty starts to fade. Someone also once said, at the end of the day, we all end up looking like Winston Churchill. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What's the point? What's the point I'm trying to make? Here's the point. When you invest in companionship, watch what happens to your marriage relationship. Okay, watch what happens then. And so when you get these couples and you're you're trying to help them with their marriage, you want to show them how to be companions. Live for the glory of God. Fulfill your covenantal obligations. And watch how your attitude toward your wife changes. Right? Watch what happens. Watch what happens when you do that with your husband. Now look, you always, and you have to look at those obligations or this obligation of companionship through the lens of Jesus. What do I mean? Well, for one thing, your motivation has changed. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for them, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What's my motivation? Right? I don't live for myself anymore. Right? I don't live for myself. 
Men, when you're, when you're with your buddies and they're, they're just giving you the woe of what it's like to live with this woman, right? What are you going to tell him? Well, you're going to find out whether he's being a companion. And if he's not, then he needs to pour his energies into that. Why? Because life is not about you, right? Our mode of operation has changed. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. Now look, have you ever thought of that as a marriage passage? It is. All of my life is lived for the Lord Jesus. I've got to deny myself. And take up your cross doesn't mean bear a burden. Taking up your cross means you're going to be crucified. You deny yourself, you crucify your desires, and you follow Him. Now listen, marriage is nothing more than living as a disciple at home. So whatever Jesus says to disciples applies at home. So you're not going to live for yourself anymore, right? You're not living for her companionship. You're not living for his companionship. You're living for the Lord Jesus, and you're going to deny those desires that say, well, unless he treats me right, I'm just not going to be that. No. Boy, unless she gets her act together, I'm I'm out. No. You're going to deny yourself, and you're going to invest in a companionship that you have taken on as an obligation because you're not living for yourself anymore. You cannot live for yourself. You must be a faithful disciple and live for the Lord Jesus and for others. So, when you take marriage and you put it in the pan and you boil it all down, what you ought to see at the bottom of the pan is simply this, companionship. That's what it's about. Okay, I think you have a break here for a little while.